0: Being under constant stress for a long period of time must have kicked off some kind of chemical reaction in my brain. I began to recognize that some of my reactions were very similar to post-traumatic stress. Hi, I'm Bobby. I was a longtime family caregiver. I'm now a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving educator, and I've written two books for caregivers.
1: And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist, and I have not written any books on caregiving.
0: <laughs> and this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heady haze of dementia.
1: Here we focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support. And maybe we might even share a laugh or two. We all know laughter is... The best medicine.
0: It certainly is, but don't forget the wine, Mike.
1: Now you know I never forget your wine.
0: You know, we have been speaking recently about traumatic brain injury or TBI, being under the dementia umbrella, and I'm so glad that we have an opportunity to talk about this today. So many people think that that Alzheimer's is what dementia is all about, and don't recognize the fact that traumatic brain injury can lead to dementia.
1: As a matter of fact, according to the National Institute of Health, there is a long history linking TBI with the development of dementia to include Alzheimer's, but also Parkinson's and frontotemporal lobar degeneration, and even other neurological diseases such as multiple sclerosis and ALS.
0: So that brings us to today's guest. She's the founder and chair of Resurrecting Lives Foundation, as well as a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. She has experience in internal medicine, emergency room medicine, occupational medicine, and rehabilitation medicine, and is certified by the American Board of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Since 1988, she has served as Medical Director of Rehab Services at Memorial Hospital of Union County in Marysville, Ohio, where her special interest is is with traumatic brain injury, since she has experienced TBI recovery, both as a physician and as a patient, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Chris Ann
1: Gordon. Good afternoon, Dr. Gordon.
0: Thank you so much, Mike and Bobby. I'm so
2: pleased to be here, and I really, you know, consider myself and our foundation a voice for those who have lost their voice, and that's our returning veterans with traumatic brain injury. So,
0: um, I really seriously appreciate this opportunity. And we are so glad to have you. And, you know, traumatic brain injury is one of the very few forms of dementia that there is hope to prevent the injury that leads to dementia. And I understand that's very close to your heart. Would you like to speak to us and our listeners about that? I would love to. And thank
2: you so much, because I think, you know, when we talk about TBI or traumatic brain injury, we're primarily talking in our, what I call them, our warriors on the playing field and the battlefield. It's the young, very physically healthy people who get injured in their teens and early 20s, by and large. Um, so what we do is we have a period of time to kind of help them prevent the normal aging process that can lead to dementia after that. You know, we have to keep in mind, like you said, Bobby, there's like 10% of all dementias are caused by traumatic brain injury. And so because of that, I think that there are different things that we can tell them over the 20 years that they may developing this how to avoid it since you know, and I think Mike knows more than anybody, how difficult it is to treat dementia once you have it, right? I mean, did you find any great miraculous treatments taking care of your father-in-law?
0: Absolutely not. And I have to imagine that when you have this TBI and early onset dementia in the physically healthy people, that requires different responses to the behaviors that is so key
2: and so correct. And we really need our healthcare community to understand that because it is very difficult. Trust me, I have an aunt who's now 91 dementia, but she's a little old lady. I mean, an LOL. She's 80 pounds and you know, um, may act a little bit childish, but she's not a uh, an athlete or a veteran in their 40s who are muscular and still extremely strong. And as opposed to some people as they get elderly, they get more into the depression. The folks that we see with the early onset Alzheimer's, these young warriors have that warrior personality. So the anger issues, the impulsivity, the fact that they are, are very physically fit and very strong becomes an increased worry, I think, for the caregivers.
1: It's interesting. Um, I spent 31 years with Department of Defense, and I recall probably back in 2014 uh, timeframe, I saw Operation Resurrection, the documentary that was done, or mini-documentary. Yes. And I remembered it as soon as I went to watch it preparing for the show. I remem- remembered it immediately. But one of the things that struck me going into what you just said is that it's, it says on there that 90% of the vets with TBI become substance abusers. And that is so striking.
2: Well, you know, it's, the literature now is, is kind of scaling back on that just a little bit. But if we talk about mild traumatic brain injury, again, we're talking about young basically adrenaline driven, males more than females, active in sports, active in war. Okay, so you take that population and what they found is some studies now say 40%, now they say 40 to 70%, but you will abuse something within that year's time. And if you think about it, Mike and Bobby, we're thinking about people who either have a brain that's going to hyper You know, these guys are reliving their war experience over and over again, so they try to slow it down with opiates, alcohol, marijuana, something to stop the brain, or you have like what I had, which was a very slow brain, I could not jumpstart my brain at all, so I literally became addicted to caffeine. And I'm not even saying that these substances have to be illegal substances, you know, right. but I became addicted to caffeine. And, and luckily, you know, the, the Irish gene in me threw in some chocolate there, too, you know, and <laughs> you know, basically to get that brain going again. And I think, again, Bobby, to your point, when we're talking about this younger population, they're trying to fix their brain. They realize they're 20, 25, 30. They've got children, they've got spouses, they've got their lives to live, and they cannot function in this world. So, you know, the most important thing that I tell them is get rid of that, you know, kind of tendency to abuse substances. Keep your mind, body, and your brain, you know, very sharp and very protective, you know, avoid those substances that can
0: get you into trouble really quickly down the road. Well, you know, when, when people ask um, about how to prevent dementia that's not caused by injury uh, we like to remind them that what's good for your heart is good for your mind, which is, you know, healthy diet, exercise, ab- avoiding excessive use of alcohol, uh, avoiding drugs, and and all of that definitely falls into treating or, or reacting to dementia, regardless of what it is. Now, I have a question, you know, thinking back years ago when Soldiers would come back from war, and um, now we call it PTSD. And I happen to notice that on the, some of the documents that you sent, you mentioned that PTSD and TBI look similar, but it affects the brain very differently. Um, can you expand on that? Oh, I certainly can. And I'm so glad that you brought up about uh, mental
2: health. Coming back to World War One and World War II and even Vietnam, because you, you know very well from your caregiving experience with Roger that the brain is chemical receptor, chemical receptor. You know, I mean, the activities and behaviors are all brought about by that very simple process. So. The fact that our heroes coming back from war in World War One, World War II and Vietnam were told that they were crazy, and that continued till today, was actually what got me on my mission to say, no, that's not true. This is a brain injury. This is not a mind injury. This is not a lack of resilience. This is not somebody who's just trying to scam the government. These are people who actually have had their brains blown up. These are people who actually have symptoms similar to Parkinsonism that you brought up, Alzheimer's that would develop down the way because there are certain neurons in the brain that have been destroyed. So, when we talk about traumatic brain injury, TBI, we're talking about an anatomical problem. And in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, primarily from the IED blast or the improvised explosive device that just blows up and literally rips their neurons apart. Now we go to the PTSD part, and this is what's so fascinating to me. Um, I was putting up Christmas decorations when I had my traumatic brain injury, and I have all of the hallmarks of PTSD, and that, I think, became the savior to the first 100 veterans that I saw that I had a two and I, you know, people can argue my mental stability, but the truth is I was never labeled as being crazy. And what we have now proven is that it's a chemical abnormality in the brain. And it's a chemical abnormality where you play back the last thing that happened that usually led to your being alive and somebody else being injured or terribly injured. Uh, In my case, it was just led to my being alive, and I kept playing back what had happened so that I would avoid that in the future. So PTSD and traumatic brain injury are very well linked together, and the general neuroscience feeling now is you don't get post-traumatic stress disorder or that chemical imbalance, unless you've had either a concomitant or a preceding traumatic
0: brain injury. I'd like to bring up, um, you know, PTSD in, in those who are caring for people with dementia, who become sleep deprived and hypervigilant over month, months and often years at a time. And it, it wasn't until after I Roger had passed, Probably, in the last year or so, that I began to recognize that some of my reactions were very similar to post-traumatic stress. Now, I didn't have an injury, but I think that being under constant stress for a long period of time must have kicked off some kind of chemical reaction in my brain. Yeah, it absolutely does, and it actually does cause
2: brain injury, That is for sure. Um, your the lack of sleep is so important. Like, You know, I tell our athletes and our veterans, they've been on a routine to keep their body physically fit. Why is it that when they leave that, you know, they stop doing that altogether in many cases? And after a brain injury, as you know, you don't have that motivation that you may have before. But what? the TBI saying is not necessarily, Bobby, that that happened at the time, but that sometime in your life, either you fell off a bike or fell out of a tree or fell off a ladder or or got up and hit your head on something. I mean, something kind of predisposes you to be
0: hypersensitive to the chemicals that are involved in stress. Well, that's very interesting because I was a very active kid, and I know I've I fell many times, you know, roller skating, hit my head, um, fell off a tree, fell out of a tree more than once. And my goodness, Michael, you're in big trouble. (laughs) Oh, I never
1: hurt myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you an athlete, uh... Michael?
1: No, I just don't, as Bobby says, I don't know where I end and the rest of the world begins.
2: Oh, really? I see.
1: (laughs)
0: So that means you're out in the world in some form all the time. <laughs> now we've been concentrating on on, on the soldiers, but we we're also seeing this in say boxers and football players, and you know, we start kids playing football very, very young. So when again going back to prevention, what can people do to protect the young people who are involved in these contact sports? Bubble wrap. Oh, you know, this is true. I actually,
2: years ago, invented something I called an oops suit, you know. And it's <laughs> like if you start falling, it would just inflate like the Michelin man, you know. Now they're actually doing that in Japan. But it really is true. That's a, that is a very good point. Here's something that I think that your audience would be very interested in. Do you know what the number one predictor of a traumatic brain injury is? I don't that would be a previous traumatic brain injury. And that sounds like, you know, okay, kind of an oxymoron, but no, it is true. What we are finding, and this goes to your point, Bobby, how do we prevent this in sports? One of the reasons why we take athletes out of the playing field now when they've had a concussion is because it may take up to a month or two to heal from a concussion. And if you go right back in, too soon, your balance isn't quite the same, your vision isn't quite the same, your reaction times, your processing, all of those are just a bit off. So depending on your level of play, uh, where that's very difficult in grade school, of course, and your brains are more vulnerable. If we're talking about the professional athlete who has to be so sharp, I mean, because everybody else there may as not have had a concussion last week, it can actually lead to very difficult consequences. There's something called the second impact syndrome, which is having a second traumatic brain injury occurring right after first. And I've seen that in several of my veterans who had a blast injury, an IED blast. And then, you know, early on in the war, by early on in the war, I'm meaning the first seven years that we were at war, nobody was looking at this. So not really early on, but well into the war. And then they got another blast injury 10 days later, and they ended up in a coma. We see that in Texas is the place that I follow the most because they have the most most football, the most high school football. And every year in Texas, there'll be one or two young men who are in high school, usually juniors or seniors, who have that second impact syndrome, and then will actually literally die on the field because they went back to play. Not through anybody's fault. They may have not even realized that they were dazed, you know, several weeks before. But it becomes very, very difficult to tell what that young brain will do, you know boxers, hockey, interesting enough, we can't leave the women out, because women's soccer players are the actually next to football players, women's soccer players, and in some states, women's soccer players in high school and college, much more so than the males who are playing football, have more traumatic brain injuries, particularly from the headers, from, you know, that's one of the, the main, it, it looks really cool, and it gets the audience going, and you know, the fans going, but it causes very difficult um,
0: injuries in women in that age group as well.
1: That's interesting.
0: You mentioned coma. Yes. That really sparked something in me because when we first realized that that uh, Roger was diagnosed as schizophrenic early in his life, and exp- his explanation to me was he went into a coma for 11 days and he woke up in a hospital. And I have to wonder now if he had some kind of injury that led to the coma that triggered his first psychotic episode. I, I would think that that would be most probable, particularly since he, he was in the service at the time,
2: wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, I would. I would think that that um, that would be m- most probable. When I listened to your first podcast where you talk about a lot, which is everybody who's listening here, please go back and listen to that first one because it really speaks to your mission. And it's really what made me think, oh, I want to connect with these people and not just for this particular interview, but for the long haul, because it is so important. And I would definitely believe that that is what happened to them. Plus the fact that, he was in the right age group for even a relatively minor, quote unquote, I've got my little air quotes here, relatively minor brain injury causing something very severe.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. It would seem that there had to be something that that sparked it
2: particularly to spark a coma, I mean, I I have taken care of, uh, you know, we know that the average time that the male will have a schizophrenic episode will be like in their early to mid twenties, you know, and women are just a little bit later, but what, that is, is it's a buildup of the fact that the brain is remodeling itself at that time. And for some reason, schizophrenics cannot clear the, you know, it's kind of like cutting branches off a tree. You're, you're cutting branches off your neurons and making your 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 brain look a lot better pruned. They don't clear that degree similar to those in Alzheimer's who don't clear their debris either and it gets cogged down and then affects their thinking from that time forward but they don't go into coma you know they kind of muddle through and they do things that other people think are kind of crazy or they may be hearing voices or having delusions or they may just uh, quit bathing you know any of those things are signs a coma is, is sign of trauma or you know was there some medication that was slipped to him you know I mean mm-hmm. I, I will tell you the Department of Defense is all about meds you know so yes. is the VA you know what we talk about you know Bobby when we talk about that what the caregivers need to do we need to get these folks on some form of meditation you know transcendental meditation to help connect the front part of the brain with the mid part of the brain or you know to exercise or to do things that are, are gentle in your brain brain games, you know, to, to play those either on the computer or to work on paper, Sudoku, or whatever. We talk about those things, but these are not people who go into GOMA.
1: One of the things that I also uh, recalled from the Operation Resurrection is that, and, and I've seen this over and over again, being thir- t- 31 years with the Department of Defense, is that we spend, and also having been in the Army myself, We spend about a year, give or take a month or two, in training a a soldier, an airman, a, a sailor to go to war. But when it's time for their tour of duty to be done or their enlistment to be done, we just basically drop them off at the curb, you know, tuck and roll. And there's no transition back to civilian life. It's just drop them off.
2: That's exactly why we were formed. Exactly why I formed uh, Resurrect. And I said, and for the listeners who may not know, Operation Resurrection is a documentary that I produced early on. Um, it became a necessity to me because I had volunteered at the Veterans Administration Hospital doing the traumatic brain injury screening. And what I realized is That was all new to their world. And I had to quickly, you know, try to get some awareness among members of the DOD community. The VA community had to get members of Congress. So I filmed this documentary that is pretty dry, really, except for the five guys with TBIs who tell their story and what happened to them with the blast and that and then how they fought back. And it was with that documentary that we were able to air on Capitol Hill thanks to our Congressman, Congressman Steve Stivers, who is a Brigadier General in the Ohio National Guard, that we got the first legislation ever on Congress that actually mentioned traumatic brain injury as an injury. So uh, I was really, it it made everything worthwhile. You guys are producing this podcast. It's horrible to produce anything and to take a civilian doctor and say, okay, now I can do a documentary. (laughs) Let me tell you, (laughs) it was not the easiest thing to do, but it was that important. I look at the Department of Defense. I I do a lot of workers comp Um, medicine here in physical medicine rehab and the Department of Defense is the only employer that I know about that actually has no liability for any of the injuries that occur under their care I mean not in training not in combat not in their service because when they leave the Department of Defense with a handful of cash and usually a handful of drugs that's what our young guys got a handful of cash and a handful of opiates to take care of their pain they're sent to the VA. And everything totally starts anew there. And that appointment may occur anytime within the first month after your discharge or 25 years later. I mean, it is a system that needs to be fixed and we were very blessed when, Secretary Bob McDonald was in the VA um, because he was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and we we knew him. And we had a letter that any one of the veterans who contacted us, the moment that they were discharged from their military service, they had a letter from, you know, the secretary of the VA saying you will get your VA appointment within the next two weeks.
1: And we will
2: find out what's going on and we will transfer records and we will do. And I mean, unfortunately our, our political system is such like the military that there's that constant changeover. So you get somebody who says that for, for two years, that worked great, and then you know he left, somebody else came in, and that was not on their agenda. So um, we really do need to do that. That is the most important thing. And Bobby, to your point, I think that's the most important thing for preventing dementia down the road is getting that soft handoff, getting these people to be diagnosed and to be treated and to get on a very good healthy regimen right away. Right now, there are fewer than 3% of our men and women from Iraq and Afghanistan or actually diagnosed and treated properly for their traumatic brain injuries, and there's wow. fewer than thirty percent that are getting any kind of care whatsoever at the VA, and those are just abominable numbers.
0: And I, I do, you know, to your point of getting um, Congress involved and in, in getting um, some of our political leaders involved, can make a big difference. I recall I was desperate for respite care, you know, towards the oh, end of our caregiving years. And through the VA hospital at the time, we, we were offered 30 days of respite care each year, no more than 14 days in a row. And typically we took it like two or three days just so we could decompress. We could admit him into the VA hospital for those days. Um, and I had been trying for weeks to, to get him in because I desperately needed to sleep. And they kept telling me that they just didn't have any beds and it wasn't gonna happen. Nobody was being uh, admitted for respite. And I I, I was desperate and I said, well, you know what? If you can't find a bed, I am going to call my local congressperson and tell them we have a veteran, 100% service-related disability who needs respite care. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to admit him to the nursing home because I can't do this anymore. Two days later, he was admitted to respite. Oh, that's phenomenal. And see, that's what I said. When
2: everybody complains about Congress, I said, you know what? Our Congress members from, you know, we, we actually represent veterans from 28 different states now have contacted us, you know, so we're getting our way around. But the, the Congress and Senate, if necessary, as well, and they've been just absolutely... Terrific because I think they do understand, you know, our motto is resurrect a hero, strengthen a nation. You know, these are people who volunteered their lives to save our lives. We cannot let that spirit, you know, that person just fall between the cracks and end up, you know, incarcerated or homeless or unemployed or, you know, the final blow, which is suicidal or committing suicide within their first eight to 10 years back from their service. We just, you know, as a society, we cannot allow that to happen.
1: So you've mentioned a couple of times the Resurrecting Lives Foundation. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: You know, this is very interesting, Like that you would bring that up, because first of all, I had to smile when you brought up about Operation Resurrection, because uh, very few people know about that. It is on our website at resurrectinglives.org, but very few people know about it. But I filmed that documentary just purely because, this is true, my favorite ex-husband was an Emmy-winning news producer. Okay. And what (laughs) he taught me was this. Number one, the power of the media. And number two, if you have a camera, You either get an interview or you get closed out of an interview, and either way, you have a story, and I remember that, and I said, okay, so I went out, and I got the equipment, and I got a crew in Los Angeles, and we put things together, and that's what we did. We headed out to say, you know, who knows what about what's going on here? This is going to be an awareness piece. It aired in its trailer form on 11-11-11, and I got a call from the Rockefeller Institute. And somebody from there said, we saw your trailer. We love this. We want you to form a nonprofit. We will support you. You know, we'll give you website support. We'll give you millions for research and awareness and treatment, and this will be great. So, you know, I mean, I betted them. They were serious. I went ahead, okay, we're, we're putting in for the IRS nonprofit resurrecting lives their name their website and then they all disappeared I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. and so here i am and i'm there like okay i'm six months into this i've got it and i say okay well in the divine providence of things apparently this was supposed to be what i was supposed to do and we've already down this far so that's how we form the resurrecting lives foundation and what we are is an awareness nonprofit. you know we are very you heavy into the volunteerism, 90 cents of the dollar goes to veteran services and veterans awareness. And what we are trying to do is to promote the fact that when somebody leaves our military service, they have a chance at a future. How do we do that? Healthcare, education, employment. We need those three pillars of the community to join and do just what you said, Mike. You've got to give them some chance you know when you think about it most of our all voluntary military left high school they left their mom and dad's home. They go to the military. Many of them, to your point, I get injured during those two months of training, you know, with falls, with artillery blasts. Let me tell you, nobody jumps out of an airplane in a parachute the first seven times and doesn't jostle their brain. Nobody. I mean, there's lots that go on there. We can't just send them off of that. And then they go, okay, you're back in the civilian world. You know what? They've never paid for anything. they haven't written a check. They haven't had a checkbook. They have never taken public transportation. I mean, nobody gives them that soft handoff, and that's something that we're we're really promoting and trying to get done
1: you know it's it's interesting because um I saw many. And have gone to many retirement parties, mostly for officers that I worked with during the years. And they always went on this reti- They always had this retirement class about uh, yeah. for two weeks, yeah. about thirty to forty-five days before they actually ended their service time. And uh, one guy joked. And he said, well, they're teaching us how to dress and how to match clothes because we've never had to do that. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. Yeah. I've been in a uniform for 35 years, and I'm 50, 55, yeah. and I've never had to think about dressing myself. And so he, it was funny because he always took the easy way out. He, I think it was two years in before we saw him in something other than a white shirt. Oh, is okay. <laughs> He said, no matter what suit I wear, it works. White shirt works. <laughs> he said, they taught us that in how to dress yourself school before oh, I God. retired. But unfortunately, when somebody ends their six year enlistment or four year enlistment, whatever that is, like you say, they drop them off at the curb yes. and don't give them any transition back.
2: Right. And that's why your program is so very important. Programs like this podcast, because we in the civilian world need to understand more of the military culture. I mean, my father had been in World War II, but was in intelligence and never talked about it. I mean, I'm not a military brat. I'm not a military kid. And I'm suddenly going in. I didn't realize that there were different branches and that they don't like to talk to each other and that the different branches have different ranks. And, you know, there's just so much that I didn't know. Well, let me tell you, what I didn't know about the military is nothing to compare to what a, a young man or woman with a brain injury who left in high school and went to serve and now comes out and face it. It, it. It's nothing compared to them. We really do need to give them the benefit of the doubt. We need institutions, universities and trade schools and and definitely the VA in their health care and employers to realize that and, and make it a teaching you know, uh, for the first six months, they should be on a on a fast teaching curve, not just saying, hey, make it a break. You either make it in the first month or, you know, you break it. You're on the street. That's that's just cruel.
1: Yes. You
0: know, you mentioned that less than three uh, percent who have TBI are actually being treated for. It. How many do you think come into the system in a, in a, in a month or six months or a year?
2: Okay. Uh, first of
0: all, that 3% that have been
2: what I would call accurately diagnosed. And okay, Because the main diagnostic tools for traumatic brain injury are not in the VA. It's the diffusion tensor imaging, it's the spec scans, it's kind of the high neuro diagnostics that have not yet made it to the mainstream VA. So that's why I'm saying that. The um, VA will tell you that 30% of veterans have from Iraq and Afghanistan have touched base with the VA at some point in time. And usually that's to get their post-employment, you know, post-deployment physicals or their, you know, discharge physicals. And what I hear from my vets is it takes usually between six months and a year. The VA really wants to get them in within that first year because that's That's where when they get the check from DC in doing that what happens is after they have that intake evaluation okay money comes out of what they were given for every treatment that they give and that's a system that I would really like to change because it's kind of like what the civilian world did the same thing a capitation system but you can go through five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars really quickly when you have an injury as severe as a TBI so About 30% of the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan have touched base with the VA at some point in time within the first year after their um, discharge from the military. There are currently an estimated 750,000 veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan who are struggling every day with traumatic brain injury or PTSD, of 450,000 estimated to be TBI alone, another the 350,000 to have either TBI plus PTSD or PTSD. That is a staggering, staggering number, which is why we definitely need to open up In my opinion, the diagnostics that the civilian world has needs to be opened up to our veterans as well, and we need to have collaboration of the civilian world and the veteran world and places where that happens at Mass General, at the VA at Tampa, at the VA at Stanford. You know, those are great mega medical institutions, all right? They need to be combined with the VA in all of those places because traumatic brain injury is the new frontier Dementia is the new frontier. And as you point out, the statistics for those of us who are alive now, you know, living long enough or having issues with that, either within ourselves or with taking care of somebody are staggering. We need to address that as a society.
0: Well, you know, even the Alzheimer's organization, which puts out staggering numbers that tells that something like every 60, 66 seconds, someone in the United States is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. They're not counting the people that we're talking about today. Right. Right. So it's much bigger than even that. Absolutely. You are absolutely correct. And that's why
2: I really, you know, this has been such a great opportunity to kind of join the worlds that need to be joined. This issue before COVID-19 hit us, okay? um, The World Health Organization had stated that traumatic brain injury was the fourth major worldwide health concern, and it actually proclaimed it as a pandemic. Now we only know of one (laughs) pandemic, and we kind of got it We've got to get it to move down the road, which will be you know, several months yet in our future. But this issue that we're seeing, brain health, is so important. Um, we need to stay healthy. We need to not smoke. We need to get whatever you can, like you mentioned, exercise and good nutrition to keep the circulation in the brain
0: going, because that's what ultimately is going to keep those brain cells going. It's interesting. I have been saying, you know, there's actually two pandemics going on right now. Yes. One is COVID and one is dementia. Uh,
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, COVID is now causing an inflammatory type of dementia as well. And who knows what that will do down the road. So it's going to add to that issue as well.
1: This has been very, very enlightening, Um, somewhat scary in in some (laughs) senses um, about our returning vets. Uh, But I guess. The uh, acknowledgement of it and the putting the information out is the for, is a step towards helping the situation.
2: Mike, if I could just say we have solutions, though. So, you know, I think rather than saying scary,
0: let's say a wary, you know,
1: <laughs> you're
0: yeah. because we do have solutions where we just need as a society to accept them. Excellent point to end the program. Absolutely.
1: Dr. Gordon, it's been so informative having you on the show. And you are such a delight.
2: Well, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And like I said, we we need to keep in touch because we have, you know, we're definitely headed in the same direction and the direction we're headed in will help elevate our communities and our nation. And thank you
0: so much. Again, thank you.
1: Wow. That was a lot of stuff to wrap my head around. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think, you know, probably one of the most important things is how Prevention of brain injury is important, whether it's through an actual physical I- injury or through alcohol or whatever it might be. We need to protect our brains.
1: Yes. And one of the things that I found amazing was when she said that one of the major causes of brain injuries of women is women's soccer. I would have never connected those dots
0: Yeah. And we, when we talk about PTSD and TBI, we, we do tend to think of males and we think of football and we think of war injuries. But of course, more and more women are involved in, in, in war injuries too.
1: But it just goes, it just goes to show that it doesn't have to be a helmet to helmet hit like in football. It could be what you would think a soft ball Mm -hmm. and doing a header in soccer. So the, Uh, Brain injuries are much more prevalent than we really think that they are right now, even though the acknowledgement in the past four to five years has been gone from five miles an hour to 60 miles an hour, there's still so, so much more um, acknowledgement and knowledge to be gained.
0: Resurrect a hero, save a nation.
1: Yes, definitely. Definitely.
0: You can find more information about Dr. Gordon and the Resurrecting Lives Foundation resources on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby,
1: And I'm Mike.
0: And we're dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia.
1: Please subscribe to the show. Go to iTunes and post a review. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to RogerThat.Show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.
0: Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.